my friend. We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking fact about Radio Mysterioso. Uh, not quite. Uh, tonight on the show is promised Nancy Talbot, and I'm going to call her up right now, so listen to this wonderful music. It's Radio Mysterioso, and like I said, as promised, uh, this week we have Nancy Talbot, who is uh, director of the BLT research team. I'll read their um, their intro here from their site, which is bltresearch.com. Uh, the BLT Research Team Incorporated, its primary for- focus is crop circle research, discovery, scientific documentation, and evaluation of physical changes induced in plants, soils, and other materials at crop circle sites by the energy or energy system responsible for re- creating them, and to determine, if possible, from these data, the specific nature and source of these energies. Secondly, uh, BLT's intent is to es- publish these resu- research results in peer-reviewed scientific journals and to disseminate this information to the general public through lectures, mainstream articles, and the Internet, and shows like this. Hello, Nancy. Hi there. Let me see if I can get the uh, there. Yeah, it's probably a little bit better. Uh, level on you. You can hear me fine? You sound a little bit like you're underwater, but I can hear you pretty good. Okay, let me let me move myself here so that I can get better near the uh, microphone that you hear me on. Is that a little better? Yeah, that's much better. Okay, good. Uh, was that a, uh, well, it's off your site, so I was going to say, is that a fair introduction? So it, that's something I think you wrote. Yeah, I did. <laughs> uh, what, what does, uh, you know, well, there's that little introduction I gave, but um, maybe you can get, give a little bit better personal, you know, why was BLT founded, when was it founded, and uh, what got you interested in crop circles in the first place? Um, I'm going to start with the last question first. Okay. Um, 
I think it was in 89 or 90, right around then, I first discovered them. I didn't even know about them before then. And I'd gone down to the kiosk in Harvard Square one night to get uh, something interesting to read. And there was a foreign magazine kiosk there. And there were a number of uh, journals or newspapers and magazines from the United uh, Kingdom. And there were some with photographs of these crop circles. And I'd never seen one before. I didn't have the faintest idea what they were. But something in the design, I guess, uh, attracted my interest. And I grabbed the magazines along with a bunch of other stuff. And later that night, when I was uh, reading some of this, I, you know, read these articles at that time written by George Wingfield, one of the early British investigators, and started to realize what they were. And George is a good writer and a very careful uh, field worker, and he documented a lot of interesting things. And I was just intrigued. Um, I sort of realized right away, actually, that there was something interesting going on and decided to get to England as quickly as I could, you know, to find out for myself. And I think it was uh, 1992. I was going through a treatment for cancer at the time and had to took a while to take care of that. And I don't think I got to the U.K. until about 1992. I think I'm almost sure it was 92, the first year I was there. And I immediately got down on my hands and knees and started looking at the plants and saw some things that I thought were sort of unusual. While I was there, George, who had agreed to take me around and introduce me to people and get me into some of these things and make them, you know, help me learn as quickly as I could about them, uh, told me also that there was a, a biophysicist here in the United States who had already begun to actually examine the plants, which was news to me. Mm-hmm. Um, after that first trip, I had a number of interesting things occur, but when I got back home, the fact that there was any credentialed scientist actually paying attention, I wanted to immediately follow up. I wanted to find out who this guy was and uh, did he have the credentials and what was he doing exactly and uh, if it all looked good, then I wanted to get involved. And I went to Michigan right away and introduced myself to Levengood and over the next several days or weeks, however long it was I was up there, I realized that what he was doing was perfectly routine lab sort of procedures. Uh, he was getting samples uh, of the plants from inside crop circles and then some control plants from outside. And he, not knowing where to begin, was examining all sorts of tissues, looking at all sorts of things, to see if he could find any differences. And as far as I could tell, he was following absolutely typical normal lab procedure. And he showed me his lab books and we went over some of the stuff. And it seemed to me a sensible, straightforward sort of investigation. And I asked if I could become involved. At about that same time, John Burke, who is the B in BLT, L, the 11 good being the L, uh, had also become interested. I didn't know John at the time, but he had also just contacted 11 good. And pretty soon the three of us realized that together, if we pooled our talents, we might actually get something accomplished, something sizable here. I had some money at the time and decided that I could afford to 
pay for the transportation of materials and uh, all of the telephone, you know, across the ocean kind of stuff. The renting of barns, these uh, plants, when they're sampled in Europe or anywhere that's far away, they have to be dried down before they're shipped. And that often meant renting barns to dry the samples down in. Protocols had to be developed, sampling protocols, and uh, the whole field personnel had to be not only found but trained so that the sampling was done in a consistent manner no matter who was doing, doing it and that they were following certain protocols that everybody was. I mean, the more you can introduce this into this sort of work, the sooner you're going to know whether the changes that are found in one situation are, are consistent, you know, across the board. Yeah. So I decided to do that part of the work. Levengood, of course, is doing all the lab work. And John Burke, who had uh, a real facility in the libraries, the university libraries, was going to be spending a lot of his time doing literature researches to see, you know, if similar things had been found elsewhere, what they were attributed to, you know, how much documentation there was, blah, blah, blah. And so that's really how it started. It was a, a fairly loose affiliation between the three of us, simply an idea that we were going to try and uh, do some serious work and see if we could find any physical changes that were consistent through various countries, you know, across various years uh, in the crop circle plants. In the beginning, we were not looking at the soils. We were simply looking at the plants. And Levengood had already discovered a few things by the time the two of us joined him. Uh, in not too long a period of time, we started to narrow down certain changes that were being discovered in the plants as being very consistent and quite reliable. Some of the earliest parameters we looked at uh, turned out not to be reliable or were not important, and so they were discarded as we went on to other things. The first paper that we published actually was in 1994, and it really contained most of the, of the real basic early work that Levengood had done, a lot of it on his own, and then with a little bit of our help later on. Uh, yeah, you said you started this, but um, what was your – this is a question that would probably come up. What was your work before that, or did you have any special qualifications to start doing this kind of work, or it just was really interesting to you? Well, I don't have a massive amount of educational background in this arena. My, I had worked for a number of years at the, at, in Harvard, at various labs in the anthropology department for a number of years and then in uh, social relations running a number of studies there working with some of the professors i did have some familiarity right. with lab procedure and you know basic basically how science is done because it's always the same regardless of what you're working on right. and i had worked at the university of maryland years before but my personal uh work prior to all of this had been I've been producing big outdoor country music festivals. <laughs> Hardly the same sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. But it's not rocket science, This the beginning of this work. Uh, it's really developing certain very sensible, straightforward protocols, making sure everybody who's working on the project uh, knows exactly what they're supposed to do in the field, you know, how the, everything is supposed to be handled, 
and then you know, proceeding in a very uh, straightforward manner. It's time-consuming. It's kind of tedious. A lot of people, I think, find it boring. But it's the only way if you're, what you're interested in here is trying to at least figure out what sort of energies are involved. I mean, energies have effect on matter, and you can begin to uh, delineate some of these energies, or that was the hope, in time, figure out what some of these energies were from the effects that were discovered in the plants and eventually the soils. What kind of? And in fact, okay. I think that early work did uh, define at least three of the energies that are present in the causative mechanism. What kind of um, changes are present in, uh, I guess you would call them genuine crop circles, meaning ones that aren't uh, made by, by hoaxers and artists and people like that? Well, the primary the testing that we've done here to think that we can make some sense in answering that question is you have to know that we did a number of control studies ourselves. Uh, this is a situation where in one of these instances with our feet, we flattened plants. In another instance, uh, a cement roller was used. And in a number of the studies, the control uh, work that we did, we used planks or boards with strings attached to the end because this is the method, the mechanical uh, method, that is described by the, the people who make them. This is how they do it, they say. Uh -huh. And so we replicated those various uh, methods in the in various fields, actually, and then, of course, examined those plants once we they've been flattened over a period of months afterwards, beginning immediately and then going on for several weeks or several months in one case in one of the studies to see if, in fact, any of the changes that we were finding in the sample plants being sent to us from around the world. Uh, were they the same or not? And consistently we found that a certain percentage, and in those early days it was in the 90 percentile range, I think, of the crop circle samples that were coming in showed changes in the plants that we did not find in the mechanically flattened plants in the studies where we've done our own control studies. Now, the basic changes in the plants that were determined over that first seven, eight, nine, ten years were apical node elongation. That's the top node, the first one beneath the seed head, mm -hmm. uh, markedly elongated, statistically significantly at least. And that would be perhaps in the 35% range, but up to maybe 214, 15, 20% increase in node length. Uh, also, expulsion cavities, holes, which were blown out at the nodes farther down the plant stem. Then there were a number of growth abnormalities when you took the seeds from crop circle plants and uh, germinated them against the controls from the same, in every case, the same field. Uh, we would find all these growth abnormalities. And as we went along, it became clear that there was more than one energy involved. It was Levengood's idea that microwave radiation or something that was acting just like it was heating up the moisture inside the plant stems almost instantaneously, very hot, very brief, so brief that it did not, in fact, burn the plants, but simply heated this moisture up inside the plants and turned it to steam. 
Now, at the top of the plant, the fibers are fairly elastic. Uh, it's the youngest part of the plant. And they stretch as the steam builds up and tries to seep out. It simply stretches the fibers at the top of the plant. And when the steam has escaped, you're left with an elongated node. Farther down the plant stem, that steam process causes the steam there to build up, but the fibers are nowhere near as elastic. They're much more rigid, much tougher, and they don't stretch. And so what happens is exactly what would happen if you stuck an egg in your microwave and left it on for too long, but it explodes. And that's exactly what we think is going on with this apical node elongation and the presence of expulsion cavities. Now, in addition, these growth abnormalities, uh, these seedlings that were grown out of the seeds, showed us a number of different things. When crop formations have occurred in immature plants, this is when the seed is not fully developed, the plants are essentially either sterilized or severely retarded in their ability to reproduce. In other words, the seeds taken from those plants do not, they never develop normally. They weigh less. Their uh, endosperm is all wrinkled. And when you germinate them, you find that they do not germinate uh, as fully or as quickly as the controls. In some cases, they hardly germinate at all, and the plants effectively would, have, would be called sterilized. However, when... Crop circles occurred in mature plants. This would be later on in the season from perhaps mid-July through August or September. Uh, when the seed is fully formed and the plant has already begun to dry down, in that situation, what we found consistently, and it was all around the world in every country we worked in, as long as it had occurred in a mature crop, the seeds would again be uh They'd be smaller, they'd weigh less, they'd be dehydrated and crinkled up a little bit. But when you germinated them, you'd find that they would grow at up to five times the rate of normal in speed. They would produce greater yield up to, I think it was 35% increase in yield. And they'd do it without water or light in many cases for long periods of time. Now, that particular effect... Uh, has been replicated by Levengood and Burke in the laboratory. And for people who are trying to follow this on the uh, Internet, uh-huh. all of this information is uh, underneath the plant abnormality section on the BLT website. And if you go down, I think it's item number seven, you will see a discussion of the replication of this particular uh, process. Uh, a machine was built that simply delivers electrical pulses to normal seeds. And after a great deal of trial and error, it was eventually discovered exactly what sort of pulse and for how long uh, for each type of seed that was tried. But we can, in fact, replicate that increased growth and yield in perfectly normal seeds, seeds that have never been exposed to a crop circle. And from that work and the ability to replicate that particular finding, we then could assume that these unusual electrical energies were also involved in at least some of the cross-circle uh, causative mechanisms. 
I think it was in 93, right now, at this time of year, actually, during the Perseids meteor shower, there was a formation in England at a place called Chur Hill, fairly late in the season, that was discovered. And in that situation, uh, a molten metal was discovered, uh, splattered all over the uh, center plants in the formation, and also splattered on chunks of soil. That material was the first time that we, it even had occurred to us actually, to what to look for in soils, you know. We, we, we were sent samples of this. And Levengood and Burke eventually came to the conclusion that the metallic material, the molten material, had been tiny little, little, literally microscopic particles of meteoritic iron, which, of course, filtered Earth all the time during meteor showers and more so during you know, something like the Perseids, mm-hmm. and that these little particles had been caught up into the energy system that makes crop circles. And from these various uh, findings, these highly magnetized little iron spheres in the soil, the molten state of this metal when it impacted the crop circle and now we know in crop circle soils regularly, the presence of these unusual electrical energies and the presence of microwave radiation, the only energy system known to science that seems to fit that model is in fact a spiraling plasma, an atmospheric plasma. Uh And it was Levengood's opinion that most likely what we were looking at was uh, a very unstable, what he would call thermodynamically unstable, but highly energetic, highly charged atmospheric plasma system, which was spiraling down towards the Earth's surface. In the case of the molten metal, it had interacted with these microscopic particles of meteoritic dust, heating them up, causing them then to form little droplets, which then impacted the Earth as the whole system created the actual crop circle. Have you looked in other places? Uh, Go ahead. It's the most logical uh, model that's been proposed yet based on actual physical findings. Doesn't mean it's the final answer, but it's the most logical model so far. Yeah, I read that on the site, and I was thinking, how much meteor meteoric dust can fall in any certain area at any certain time, and how evenly it is is it distributed? Amongst, you know, in the rest of the soil, there's a lot of questions about this that come up when I see that um, Levengood and BLT had, had uh, concluded that it came from that the metals were meteoric in origin. Well, since that paper was written, it it may very well be that that particular case at Sher Hill in 93 uh, was uh, related to the Percy meteor shower, Uh which was ongoing at the time. Right. Uh, But we've done some work since then that is not written up yet. And from this new work, what we have found is that uh, coal-fired power plants up until very recently, uh, before certain emission standards were put in place, at least here in the U.S., produced effluvia, which in which are these tiny little, in the range of about 5 to 10 or 15 micron diameter 
uh, magnetized spheres also. Uh-huh. Now, in the in the cereal case, and in a number of other crop circle cases, the particles have been much larger than the ten or fifteen micron diameter limit yeah. of the coal flop, the coal fired power plant effluvia. Uh, larger enough to rule out that particular source, but we have found that this other material seems to be deposited. Um, pretty evenly almost everywhere we've looked. That does not rule out the other material also being deposited. And in particular, it doesn't, it, it doesn't take away from one of the most startling findings, which is that these magnetic particles are often distributed, distributed in the crop circle linearly. Linearly now, in what way? Fusion that is so curious, you see. Uh-huh. Linearly in what way? You mean in, in a swirly pattern or kind of spokes or across um, the circle? In some cases, it has been distributed along multiple radii, okay. increasing exponentially as you go out towards from the center of the circle onto the edge if you're circling. Uh-huh. In some cases, we found it distributed from the edges of circles going out into the control areas in exactly the same fashion. This wouldn't happen naturally. This right. had something to do with the energy system involved in the actual crop circle. And then we have found cases where the majority of the particles are clustered right at the center, and more typically, we find them clustered simply around the periphery of the circular components, around the edges, in other words, of the circles, just inside and just outside. In that case, you can envision easily, you know, a rotating delivery system of some kind that is just depositing this materials. Why they would sometimes be clumped in the middle and why in other cases they would be deposited linearly, we don't know yet. Right. Uh, and you did say control. So you've been, when you do these uh, samplings from the circles, you take samples from outside to varying distances from the circle itself and other places in the field? Oh, yeah. I mean, in every single case, there are controls. None of this work is done without controls. Uh, a typical formation, for instance, let's say it's 150-foot diameter multi-circles. I mean, it might be, if you look at, I think the only thing, the only sampling diagrams, which are right now on the website, would be in the XRD clay mineral study. Uh-huh. And if you look at the cases in that study, you'll see sampling diagrams, which are very typical of what we would do which is we take several diameters, let's say, through a given circle and sample at maybe every three feet, every five feet, every whatever. You, you divide the diameter of the circle up into even increments and then sample right along it. But those lines are extended out into the field so that you get a, a, a sample just inside or just at the edge of a crop circle. Uh, and then you continue and the next five feet, and the next five feet, and the next five feet, and the next five feet. And you keep this going right on out into the field, could be two, three hundred feet away uh-huh. from the formation itself. And everything outside the circle is originally con- con- considered a control. We found in some cases, in fact, they are not, because in some cases the energies have, in fact, affected standing crop outside uh, crop circles as well as standing crop inside. But generally speaking, if it was outside the visible flattened perimeter, 
we would assume it was a control and start labeling those as control one, two, three, four, five, you know, whatever. You also in that um, magnetic uh, material in soil section on the website, um, it actually mentions the report actually mentions that some of these nodules, these spheres, were actually are actually found inside the plants too. Well, in that case at Chur Hill, they the the material must have been in a completely molten state when it hit because it embedded itself in all the little crevices in the seed edge, you see. Oh, okay. But the tiny, the little spheres uh, have not, are not found inside the plants themselves. Oh, all right. It was mold material, distant pieces of it, that it just embedded itself in all these crevices in that particular case. Okay. Have you looked into the possibility, and, and um, I'm sure this occurred to you and, and Mr. Levengood and Burke early on, that uh, the material is present in the soil in the first place, and whatever this energy does kind of pulls it out and melts it? It was their opinion that that was not the case. I'm not exactly sure 100% why, uh, but I think it was partly because of the EDS and what it revealed as to the makeup of the of the metal, this very pure iron. Uh, and they did not feel that it had come from the soil and been pulled out. They felt that it had come, it was an aerial deposition, and that the best explanation fit this, you know, what they wrote up in that second paper, which was that the uh, crop circle energy system just happened in that case to coincide with the um, microscopic particles coming down from the perceived meteor shower at the same time. I see. I, I'm I mean, this, this area is not uh, Levengood's primary expertise, and the paper was accepted for publication. It must have appeared uh, like a logical presentation, whether it's the final answer. I don't know that we would say, uh, that, he, that even Levengood would say, that these are the final answers to everything. This uh-huh. is very good foundation work. And I'm sure as other scientists become involved, and it's already uh, happening with the X-ray diffraction study, that certain aspects of the original work are modified and altered. You know, the conclusions are then altered slightly. And I expect that if, if we had all the money in the world and could hire people who have expertise in, in every arena you want to think of, we could make headway, I'm certain, you know, incredible headway. But as it is, because of the media, the mass media, pretty much has lumped crop circles in with any other craziness you want to think of, there isn't a huge amount of academic interest in them yet, you know? Yeah. Well, well <laughs> it's obvious from what we've talked about for the last half hour or so that there should be interest. Um, well, anything that can alter the ability of a plant to reproduce itself and in fact can increase its growth rate and yield and do so under conditions of no light or water, my God, I mean, how is this not interesting? Or little light or water anyway. No, I'm saying no light or water. Oh, really? They're germinating without... Uh, It was discovered completely by by accident. Uh Uh, One, we were working on some samples from a 
crop formation in California, and the plants had been shipped in and were in Levengood's lab, and he had taken the materials he needed from the samples and put them back in the box, and he normally he had a procedure where when he had taken what he needed, he then would dispose of these plants. He had an incinerator and did it in a very proper way, and he thought that that particular box had been destroyed. And it was eight days later in his lab when he rediscovered that box. And the sample plants were vigorously growing. They'd been in a black, you know, dark box with no water, no light for several days in transit from California, then in his lab for another eight days. And the controls were all dead as doornails. <laughs> and the sample plants were, I mean, growing like gangbusters. Without any soil so, or I mean, anything? There was no water and no light, probably for a minimum of 10 or 11 days there. And no soil either? No soil, nothing. <laughs> they were growing. Yeah, see, you say this, and it seems like it would be quite interesting to at least uh, people who are interested in, in crop yields. Has it uh, caught on anywhere? Is anybody looking at this and saying this is interesting and we should use it? Well, you know, as I said, uh, Levengood and Burke built this piece of equipment that delivers what they call ion avalanches. I think this is really just electrical pulses, very specific electrical pulses, uh -huh. to normal seeds. They called it the MIR uh, procedure, and I have linked to the website, their website, about this. They tried to sell this technology to the seed community, and as you can well imagine, Monsanto had about was about as interested as I mean, it's an extremely simple procedure. Uh, anybody really could do it. And there was no way, I guess, for Monsanto to, to see how to control it or how to make money from it. I mean, this particular way of treating the seeds not only increases the growth rate and yield and the hardiness of the plant, the ability of the plant to withstand lack of water or lack of sunlight, it does it without altering the environment in any way at all. Uh, no pollution, no effect on the bees or the birds or the bugs or anything else. And uh, was of absolutely no interest, even though Monsanto and many other major seed companies around the world carried out trials, field trials, just exactly like uh, Levin Good and Burke did, and got exactly the same results. And there are quite a few... Uh, universities that also ran uh, the, the same trials for years got the same statistical results. I remember in particular reading one study from the University of Florida. These were studies done by people who had no connection to us at all. They were simply asking for the treated seed, and then they were planting the seed themselves, you know, along with controls and carrying out all the rest of the work on their own. And consistently, the results were somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 to 35% increase in yield in corn. Uh, it was effective in cotton. It was effective in tomatoes. It was effective in carrots, if I remember. And well, yet, none of the major seed-growing enterprises had any interest in it at all. Why not? That seems like a kind of a no-brainer. So either one somebody's lying and it doesn't work or two there's some big thing against it and people don't and somebody doesn't want it out there which seems really counterproductive to uh to uh commerce and and profits and etc exactly 
Uh, if you go on the, on the BLT site, go to the Plant Abnormalities page, scroll down, I think it's item number seven, which discusses this MIR process and links to the MIR Stress Guard website where you can, you can uh, refer, the studies are right there, and all of the information uh, that Burke developed as he tried very hard to get this technology out to the rest of the world but absolutely could not, he failed and, you know, even he tried for four or five years, I know, and simply no one picked up on it. It was, it's such a simple way to improve. I mean, for, I was thinking of, you know, in places where you have drought-ridden situations all the time, mm -hmm. uh, seed treated by this process, which is very inexpensive to do, very simple to do. It might offset hunger, you know, massive hunger in certain areas of the world. Uh, it would definitely increase yield wherever it was used. I'm sure, I mean, every farmer I've ever spoken to uh, finds this highly interesting. But the seed companies, we couldn't find a mechanism to get it out. What do you mean a mechanism? Don't you think they just buy the process and start using it? Well, somebody would have to build the machines, you see. Right. I mean, someone has got to build them all. And you'd have to start a whole industry to build and distribute, et cetera. We didn't have the money to do that. And uh, what they were looking for was some other concern that would do this, take on the actual manufacturing and sale of the product itself. I mean, John, I don't know, he only had two or three of these machines that they built at all that were relatively small. And for all these trials, he would have to, it would take him days and days and days of running the seed through the machines to produce enough seed for these tests, you know, that were being done uh, by the, all these different uh, schools and universities and seed companies. I mean, to get this useful in a, in a mass sort of way, you'd need much larger machines and either some big center where everybody went to buy their seed or to take their seed to be treated or machines that could be sold individually perhaps to communes or co-ops you know yeah it just it still baffles me as to why if something see usually people don't care where something comes from all they care about is if it works well you have to get the word to them that it does and how do you do that i mean it's not as simple a thing as, as you think all right i've been talking about it for 10 years every single lecture i do <laughs> you know, I've written it up on the internet. I mean, I, I don't know what else to do maybe myself. Should, maybe they should start the word out. Maybe Farmers they should. are pretty much like everybody else. They want to see that somebody else, you know, their neighbor down the street or some other farmer they know, already knows about this and says, "Oh, look, it works." Uh, it takes advertising dollars. In this case, it takes some sort of manufacturing dollars, and then somebody who's going to do it and has the money to advertise the whole thing and get it out and get it around, and that is what just hasn't happened. Yeah, well, maybe they're looking for some, you know, maybe the people with the money, like the seed companies, are looking for something that's that's um, that's even better than that, although it just well, seems kind of strange. He thought that they had probably, from his his knowledge, which grew as he continued to do this for years, that the amount of money that had been invested in this uh, genetic stuff, the genetic engineering, yeah. was so massive that to suddenly come up with a technology that was cheap, easy to do, 
and you know very productive would have it would have it was that they'd wasted you see all this other money and he felt that had a lot to do with why they weren't interested in going with it it sounds like an ego thing more than a any kind of a conspiracy it's just and, and also a control thing because the technology to do this is not that complicated. The patent is online. Any farmer, any enterprising farmer, can go and read the patent now and build this machine himself or herself. Well, you know what? My, my uh, family owns land in um, Oklahoma, and the uh, farmers there actually rent the land from my father based on, the, um, on their yield. If they don't, they get. He gets a split of the yield. If there's a higher yield, he makes more money. Uh huh. <laughs> Maybe I should talk to him about it. Well, you should at least get him to go read this stuff, because uh, he might find that he wants to give it a shot. And depending on what he grows, now if I, if I remember this correctly, wheat and cotton uh, mostly. It, it doesn't work the same on all kinds of on all plants, or at least John and Levengood had not figured out exactly how to make it work in every kind of plant that grows. I see. But they had figured it out in a number of different plants, most all of which are listed, a number of vegetables and things, where it worked consistently. So it probably has, it would probably be more interesting to people who raised corn or cotton or tomatoes or some of these things that they knew mm -hmm. that it was uh, consistently, it had the same results in. Yeah, mostly it's wheat and cotton. Well, they might darn well be interested in this then. I think so. Do you, um, oh, you know what? You were talking about the uh, uh, the magnetized particles in the soil and, that uh, Mr. Levengood had uh, discovered. And then there was this um, documentary in 2002 that this Discovery Channel did, which there's a, there's a large write-up on it on your site. Um, they got a bunch of students from MIT to try and replicate what was going on in the circles that you uh, with the results that you had found, um, and I won't describe it anymore. I'll let you describe it if you if you would. Uh, another one of these uh, Hollywood things. Well, uh, what <laughs> happened was I know I, I feel a, the same I was, way. I got a telephone call from a producer of the Discovery Channel saying that he had I. I can't remember, I think it may have been a daughter who was going to MIT and it occurred it had occurred to him uh, that it would make good TV to see if some of these MIT undergraduates could replicate some of the changes in the plants and soils that we claim are a part of the authentic phenomenon. Yeah. And as I was led to believe originally, I was going to, if I agreed to do all this, uh, meet with the students, outline, I was to pick the three uh, most important criteria myself. Then I was to meet with the students, explain precisely to them what it was, you know, these three criteria, what they were. And they were going to then try to replicate these things in the field uh, in about a four or five hour period one night without lights. The whole idea was they were going to try and replicate what is supposed to happen in England, you know. Yeah. And that then uh, their result, when they were finished, the samples would be taken, both plants and soils, and they would uh, do some analysis, and I would be able to judge 
whether or not they had, in fact, produced, you know, replicated these changes. And thinking that that was how the game was going to be played, the idiot that I still am, I said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I went over to MIT. I, I live right here in Cambridge, and MIT is right around the corner. So I went over one day and met these three undergraduates, two of whom were American and a little bit arrogant, I would say, as many kids who get to MIT are. And one kid who was an Indian, and he wasn't so arrogant. He was a little, quite a bit more modest. But all three of these kids were pretty much of the conviction that crop circles were just a big joke. And I had, I, that, I kind of expected that, so it didn't matter to me. What mattered was that they listened to what these physical changes were and that they clearly understood, you know, what it was they were going to try and reproduce and that they were sincere in their effort. It never occurred to me that MIT students or any MIT personnel would participate in something insincerely. It literally never occurred to me. Uh, it would now, but it didn't then. So I did very carefully explain the three criteria that I picked. Apical node elongation, that top node, expulsion cavities, and the presence of 10 to 50 micron diameter magnetized iron spheres distributed linearly. Those were the three criteria. Okay. And the kids, they understood very clearly what they were. This is all recorded by the TV cameras, by the way. My explaining all this, and I did it laboriously to make sure they got it. They had it. And then off they went. I was not party to the making of the circle, the adventure out in the Ohio fields, blah, blah, blah. Uh, in a while, you know, they went off and they did this and they came back and I started calling to find out uh, when I was going to get to see some of these samples. And curiously, I could not reach any of these students. I simply couldn't reach them. Uh, I mean, phone numbers seemed to work and I'd leave messages, but the messages would never come back. I had trouble reaching the producer. Eventually, it became clear that I was not going to be allowed to evaluate whether these kids had succeeded or not, that instead there were going to be some graduate students at MIT who didn't know their ass from their elbow when it comes to crop circles, and they were going to be the judges. They had not been present when I described the, the, the three criteria. They knew nothing about crop circles as far as I know, but they were the judges. And the TV show, when it finally came out, uh, suggested that the students had, in fact, met the criteria, even though they had completely, they just dismissed the apical node elongation. That one just disappeared. The expulsion cavities, they never showed any on camera. They held one stalk up so far away you couldn't tell whether there was an expulsion cavity or not. Yeah. And they didn't produce any of these 10 to 50 micron diameter magnetized iron spheres. So I don't quite understand how they could possibly have suggested that the MIT kids did, in fact, replicate the findings, because, of course, they didn't. But they claimed, the television show claimed, that because the design they had made looked nice, this meant that they had uh, they'd done the job. Well, I had very specifically stated that the design of the crop circle made no difference whatsoever to our criteria. It yeah. didn't make a bit of difference. 
but all of this was ignored and it was it ended up just being Hollywood fluff, you know. And I I'm not surprised the T V shows do this. I was amazed that MIT people were involved with it. That really blew me away. I did not expect that. It was kind of funny, the show itself, actually, because one of the things the kids had built was a, a particle shooter. They were, gonna, they were trying to melt uh, laboratory filings, these iron filings you can buy at Edmund Scientific. Yeah. And they were trying to shoot them through the rear end of a, well, the front end actually reversed, of a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> and they built uh, some sort of a pipe that had a gas in it, which they would light and then try to shoot the particles through this, hoping to heat them up. And then if you shot them far enough across the field, you see the idea, I think, was that you'd turn the particles to a molten state, and that as they fell, they would then form spheres, which is exactly what we think happens in the real situation. But <laughs> this thing, the fire display out the middle of the field, you didn't see this on camera, but there were huge fire engines, you know, right at the edge of the field, because everybody was afraid they were going to set the field on fire. And if you did a display like that in southern England during crop circle season, when you've got tourists out every night, you know, watching, you, there, people would have seen it for miles. It was really kind of funny. But it's not funny that MIT or that the show claims, you know, that MIT students uh, did, in fact, replicate these changes. That's really the total misinformation to the public well it seems like th th this is kind of a thing that happens on a lot of these shows um where they will well not even you know it's not a good example of yours but they will repeat something until it it shows the uh the result that they were expecting or they will take the results that they got and ignore some very important criteria that were established at the beginning and just <laughs> concentrate on the ones that they think they were good you know that they 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 were able to replicate and i've seen this over and over again it's, it's not it, it it doesn't seem like anything like this is amenable to being on tv or or in a documentary anything like that because it just you know the real world doesn't particularly work the way people want it to all the time well i think we have to remember that tv uh, is basically entertainment and storytelling and yeah. these things that call themselves documentaries by and large, are not. Uh, there are some real documentaries from time to time. And, you know, it's funny. The, in this, all these years that I've been doing this sort of work, there is one case. This, do you remember the old, oh, what was that guy's name? Robert Stack. Yes. And the smoke would be swirling. What was the name of that series? Uh, uh, Unexplained Mysteries or something like that? Untold, isn't it? Untold Mysteries? Unsolved Mysteries. Unsolved That's Mysteries, yeah. Um, he, he that, that show did a replication of the time, the first time I ever saw a crop circle form in the Netherlands with Robert Vandenbroekus. And they redid that whole thing, and they did it exactly according to what I'd written. I had written a report, which is on the website, and they took it step by step and followed it exactly. It's the only time it's ever happened to me that they told the story exactly as, to our best knowledge, it occurred. Now, all the rest of these things, it's fanciful and not accurate. In fact, not with no real attempt to be accurate. And in some cases, like that National Geographic special, 
it was a deliberate attempt to misinform the public. I mean, there was it wasn't even uh, it wasn't even vaguely an attempt to be honest. It was a complete distortion of the facts. Now, why National Geographic would be involved in such? I mean, again, that blew me away. I didn't expect it from National Geographic. Um, you know, some things, yes, you expect it, but you know, the tabloid, sure. I didn't expect it from MIT. I didn't expect it from the National Geographic. And it scares me because so much of the public, well, not, not the younger public, but the older public seems to look at television as an inf information outlet. They actually believe what they see on TV, you know. And they don't seem to have many other resources to be finding out about what is real, what's truthful. Yeah, well, that that involves um, actually being active in your your information gathering, which can be done very easily on the internet or at the library or you know any any kind of place where you actually have to make an effort to seek out your own uh, information or make your own conclusions. And most people don't really have the time to do that, which I forgive them for. What I don't forgive a lot of people for personally is having a strong opinion on something that you've never really bothered to check out that carefully. I agree with you. I know people are frantically busy now. I mean, just just surviving for so many people takes all of their energy. But having these strong opinions when they don't know, they have the faintest idea what they're talking about, it's pathetic. It's it's scary to me. Yeah, and the other thing is the things that are backed up by a, by a scientific establishment or or think they'd like to be like National Geographic, Discovery Channel, and History Channel, they they've got a vested interest in keeping. You know, I guess the status quo of of science, which is um, doesn't seem to be very uh, what's the word curious about things in an open minded way, but then you'll have something like unexplained mysteries or 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 um, any of these UFO shows that are on some of these other channels, which present no real scientific evidence at all, and they ask you to believe based on based on a hearsay story. So you get nothing in between. You either get seems like you get something that says this there's nothing to this and the other side says oh it's completely true but they don't really give you anything to back it up actually neither of them give you really anything to back it up with except your belief in their presentation yeah we're working actually although our primary interest is and has always been the crop circles uh, because we uh, as time went by uh, Levin Good Burke and I did publish three papers in the scientific, you know, these are peer reviewed papers in the 90s. And I had thought that that would uh, cause the mainstream to pay some attention. What I discovered was, of course, it didn't. And at that point, I realized that well, we needed more scientists. We needed people in other disciplines. It wasn't that Levin Good's work was inadequate. His, his work was fine, but it was very limited. He had a particular yeah. expertise and not 20 others. And it became clear to me that if we were, my whole purpose in doing this was simply to try to reach um, really, I guess, people who are moderately well-educated who have no concept, no idea that some of this strange stuff that's going on is real. And they don't have a clue. And I wanted to try to uh, reach them 
uh, on a level which they tend to respect, which is, you know, if science tells them there's something to something, right. then maybe they'll pay attention. That was the primary motivator for me. And when I realized that Levin Good's work alone was not going to be enough, I started looking for other scientists who might get involved and who might be able to help. And that's what we've now become. Levin Good is no longer involved in DLT and hasn't been since about 2002, I think it was. John Burke and I still confer from time to time, but he's off on other adventures. And we have a number of other consulting scientists that we work with. And in a number of these cases, in fact, right now I've got two UFO cases with uh, material substances, you see, uh-huh. that we're doing as consultants to MUFON because they don't have any of these hard scientists, people capable of uh, doing work in the hearts, in the material sciences. And occasionally these UFO cases do occur in which there is um, a physical trace a left. A physical trace, you know, of some kind. And there, we just happen there are two of them right now that, uh, that some of our people are working on because they're, you know, the stuff was recovered quickly and in a good manner. And it's, it's worth actually investing some time and energy in. And maybe the results in those cases, uh, you know, will be doing, we'll find something interesting. I don't know. But we do do a number, we have done a number of UFO cases, and we also are the people who found the and identified the bovine hemoglobin at the cattle death situation. I mean, we discovered that these tiny little particles uh, on the hides of these animals were over and over and over again absolutely pure bovine hemoglobin. Hemoglobin does not precipitate out of whole blood by itself. You have to uh, centrifuge the blood, or there's a process known as electrophoresis to pull out the hemoglobin. And when you find these particles on a mutilated animal uh, miles away from the nearest road in some very unusual circumstance, I don't think we're thinking the coyotes are running around with centrifuges, you know? Yeah. You know what? Something else is going on. Uh, if you want to talk about this further, we will. We're going to take a short break here, which I usually take at the top of the hour, if you don't mind. No, fine. And uh, we'll come back with Nancy. Is it Talbot? Talbot, yeah. Yes. Uh, in the second hour here, and we'll talk a little bit more about the crop circles, um, connections to other types of anomalous phenomena that uh, her group and she has studied, and uh, maybe a bit more about this cattle stuff. So, uh, yeah, stay tuned. We'll be right back. On Radio Mysterio, so as as long as my music works. Ah, there we go. <laughs>
right before we went to um, the break here that uh, your group does other things besides uh, crop circle re research or is um, branched out into that, uh, including stuff like uh, UFOs, cattle mutilations, um, ground trace cases. Why did you do that? I mean, if you if a lot of people listening to this might know the answer to that, but what made you want to branch out in those other areas? It really wasn't that we wanted to. It is that when we had the only uh, people available to do that sort of work, uh, it seemed in some cases uh, it, we, it didn't seem very cooperative. I mean, if in fact we had uh, some availability of people who could help in another arena, why not? Unless they were up to their eyeballs with our work already, you know? Yeah. So that was really why. Uh, also, as the crop circle work has gone along, completely unexpected by me, anyhow, and I think several other people who I work with, we have slowly but surely, uh, perhaps even kicking and screaming, been forced to recognize a, what would be the way to put this, um, uh, that many of these other phenomena, which are considered paranormal, a word I don't like particularly, because I don't think it's necessarily paranormal, more that it's simply phenomena we don't understand yet. But at any rate, things that, such as UFOs, um, out-of-body experiences, uh, remote viewing, ghosts, poltergeist activity, etc. Um, these things are not we now think totally separate from the crop circle phenomenon. I have worked on a number of cases in which many of these phenomena are all involved in the one situation where it isn't just the crop circles that are happening, but UFOs are also involved. Uh, remote viewing is involved. Down body experiences are involved. Uh, ghosts or what people, you know, would call ghosts. Uh, all of this stuff has surfaced in several very specific cases that I've worked on now for a number of years, one of which is this Robert Vandenbroeke case in Holland. And as the years go by, we see that there seems to be uh, at least uh, an energetic connection. Something in the energies involved in all of these things is related, it appears. And if not, if not on an energetic level, then on some other level, because quite clearly, these are not entirely separate events. And the longer I'm involved in this, the more I become convinced that they are, in fact, 
different aspects of the the big something that we're all so interested in. Do you find, you know, a lot of people who are researching this, who are trying to get some sort of, I guess you could call it respectability or uh, ingress into the mainstream, would shy away from these things because immediately, you know, somebody will start to accept what you're saying. Yes, there are um, physical changes in these crop circle formations, some of them, which um, defy a normal explanation, being people stepping on them or whatever. But well, now you've got by mechanical flattening. That's a fact, right? But now you've you know? got you're bringing in UFOs and ghosts and all that. Does that not make you a little bit nervous to talk about that kind of stuff in connection with it, or or is it more like you said? It's like you just can't ignore it because it's just staring you in the face. It's both. Uh, it's dishonest to refuse to talk about something you know that may that is pertinent that you have reason to believe is pertinent is relevant. It's dishonest not to speak of it. Number one. Uh, yes, it makes you nervous if your goal is to reach people, you know, mainstream types who are unaware of all of this. The job gets much more difficult if you have to bring in some of these other things. But I don't honestly see any way to escape it. I simply do not see, without lying, without holding back uh, the same sort of hard information, you, you know, I don't see how you can proceed. And I... The longer I'm in it, the more I think that's really not the way to do it anyhow. I think you have to put the cards on the table that you have to put on the table and let people use their brains, and hopefully you give them the you know good enough information that they can, they're inspired then to use their brains to assimilate it themselves in whatever way they think makes sense. Totally honest, and I've talked to many people who have, who are, you know, kind of a scientist type or trying to be respectable or whatever, and they say, well, there's these weird stuff that I don't really want to talk about with people. And it's kind of rare. Once If somebody breaks out like that, suddenly they're, you know, uh, certain people won't talk to them anymore. And so it takes a kind of a bravery to just say, well, I've encountered these weird things and I'd like to tell you about them because I just can't ignore them. And, well, Actually, uh, was there some kind of precipitating event that made you realize this, or it just kind of creeped up and it just became an avalanche and you couldn't ignore it? It's more the avalanche. I mean, I, I've now had so many um, totally peculiar experiences personally. I mean, firsthand, where it's me it's happening to, or it's me standing right there watching it, uh, and it, it builds up over time, and it's like, you know, what am I, I can't possibly say this isn't happening. And I'm not drinking. I very seldom drink. I don't do drugs. I'm, you know, sober and I'm paying attention here. This stuff is actually happening. Uh, what it means, I think the way to approach it is rather than labeling it, one of the big problems I think a lot of people have is that they want so badly to uh, feel like they understand something yeah. that they put labels on long before they know what it is they're trying to label. And I think we'd be better off not labeling in any finite way lots of these events, simply describing them meticulously, doing as much uh, hard science as can be done around them, being completely open about if you don't understand what the heck it means, you don't understand. Uh, I've talked to so many farmers and ranchers over the years. Uh, I have a whole protocol that I go through, an interview thing with people upon whose properties crop circles have occurred, or if it's been a UFO thing, a UFO thing, or whatever. 
and it's exactly the same protocol. I do it every time with everybody. And I remember, oh, it was in the late 90s in Canada, there was a small town called Mydale in which six or seven crop circles occurred all of a sudden in one summer. And part of my job is to talk to the landowners, which I was doing. And in case after case after case, I had a certain point in this questionnaire that I have, the rancher who had up to that point absolutely insisted that the crop circle was made by local kids or something like that, would suddenly start to tell me about a UFO experience that they had had. Completely unprompted. I never, ever used the word UFO. And I, I was making notes. I mean, the very beginning when we did all this, I didn't even, I didn't pay attention to all those things for years. But by this time, it was starting to hit me that, wait a minute, an awful lot of people are telling me this kind of thing. And these people don't know each other. Most of them are farmers or ranchers, people who, they're fairly pragmatic people. They're not given to hyperbole usually. Yeah. And in this particular town, six of out of the seven of the landowners completely spontaneously reported to me very intense experiences with UFOs that they were relating in their own minds now to the occurrence of the crop circle. None of these people had ever told their wives or husbands. Definitely they had never told their neighbors. They were all terribly concerned, you see, about whether people would think they were crazy. And when I got through the end of that summer, there was only one farmer who did not tell me this stuff. All the others did. And I decided that it was ridiculous. I called them all back and said, look, you know, it's about time you start talking to your neighbors, to your wives, to your husbands, because everybody I've talked to in your little community, except for this one farmer, has told me the same thing. I mean, you're busy worrying about what everybody else is going to think. Well, they've all had the same experience. What was that? That they had had these UFO encounters at some time prior to the occurrence of the crop circle. Some of them had had these uh, occurrences uh, just days before or nights before. Some of them had had them weeks or months before, and a couple of them had 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 them years ago. But events which they subsequently, on their own, started to realize were somehow related to the crop circles. Or, now, well, they thought how, it was related. How can you escape that there's something going on there when six out of seven, and it started to be more, I mean, it happened time after time after time in various communities, small communities in certain states I was working in. Uh-huh. And so that started to alert me to this whole business of being so concerned about what your neighbor thinks can keep... I mean, this fear of sounding like a loon, uh, that, that people don't have enough self-confidence to, to realize that they see it, they see it. Well, you know, they don't have to name it. They don't have to say it's, it's the way the media does this business. The prop circles have to all be either made by ETs or kids, right? Right. That's the only two alternatives. I mean, dear God, who came up with this scenario? But unfortunately, once it's presented to the public, a large number of them think, oh, yeah, duh, it's got to be ETs or, or kids. Well, there are atmospheric, spiraling atmospheric plasmas. I mean, they do, in fact, exist. Maybe they're causing them. You know, maybe there's another whole range of possible answers here. 
and there's no way they're going to be explored if you've already decided it's got to be ETs, which of course are stupid because nobody believes in ETs, or kids, <laughs> in which case it's not important. You know, you kind of cut your neck, your, your, yourself off at the path there before yeah. you even begin. And there are, there are scientists now, there are a number of scientists, very well credentialed, very highly qualified people, who know that there's some very interesting things going on. They don't know necessarily that they're ETs or extra dimensionals or angels or, you know, whatever. Or whatever they label, yeah. They know there's something going on. Yeah, and they're being, uh, you would hope they're being scientists by saying there's something going on. It's not, it's not made up. It's, uh, it seems to be consistent across different places, different, uh, people, different areas. And, um, it deserves some attention. Um, yeah, and making a, making a conclusion about something is the worst thing you could do as a scientist and basically, I guess, as, as a person, especially with these weird things. And it's, it's nice to hear somebody actually say, you know, Something's going on, but we don't know what it is yet. Well, I think that in various disciplines, I've heard it from various doctors who in the medical field are coming up against, uh, there's a kind of knowledge that they're, I mean, this whole business of uh, holistic health is beginning, it's making a real dent in serious medical, you know, circles. Yeah. They're beginning to understand that there is, there are things at work beyond, you know, the science of medicine. Uh, the, the astrophysicists and astronomers and psychologists and all, I mean, there are loads of people, physicists, I hear this repeatedly from physicists, who in their work in particle physics are coming up against things which suggest to them that we don't know everything yet, that their energies are uh, going on beyond the models we currently have. And I'm sure, in as time goes by, that many, many more scientists will apply themselves. Right now, there's no funding to pay for the work. A scientist, like anyone else, has got bills to pay and kids to raise and braces to pay for and whatever. And they can't do it on nothing. Uh, most of the scientists who have put themselves into this work now are people who are at the uh, mature end of their cycle and have made a living, have got their savings set up, you know, their retirement thing is under control, uh -huh. and they can afford now to do things which they couldn't afford uh, when they were younger because if you don't build a career, you can't earn a living, and being a scientist or not, you have to earn a living. But I, I see it happening all the time. Uh, Heavy-duty scientists who are intrigued, fascinated, want to understand all of these uh, strange things. And I'm very pleased that in Holland, in this case that I've been working with oh, 10, 11, 12 years now, that we finally have gotten two highly credentialed scientists there who are working on his situation because I am working also now on a book uh, for him in English so that people can read in greater detail about his situation in English because he doesn't uh, write in English. And the book that was written about him by his father is in Dutch and hasn't been translated. So I'm trying to get that done. And when that comes out, along with some reports that I'm getting ready to put up, having some scientists in his corner is going to help, I think, a little bit 
or it may put his the scientists in a terrible position. I don't know, but you know, you you could you either deal with what's in front of your face or you don't. And if you're going to, there are going to be times when you do that where it's risky on a number of levels. Yeah, exactly. And when you say about this case, it's uh, in 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 Holland. I was going to bring that up. Uh, how do you think this is going to make people th- about your research and what's going on? Oh, well, you know what? You don't care. So what is going on in this case? <laughs> because it's well, very interesting and kind of it's I wacky. I present the information uh, carefully enough and clearly enough so that people can follow. They will see that I am not naming what is going on because I can't. Uh-huh. I absolutely could not. If my life depended on it, I couldn't. And all I'm going to do is present the facts in as strong a fashion as I can. And I think right about the time this is coming out, there's going to be some uh, scientific work that will also be presented, which will help some people, you know, perhaps take it a little bit more seriously. But the facts are what they are, and the fact that I don't understand them, and I don't think anybody else does really, at this point, it, didn't, it doesn't alter them at all. Well, and it, it isn't just his case. His case is a very strong one, but there are others that I know of around well, the world right now. Could you describe and, describe this case and some of the aspects of it? Not not to ruin your book or give too much of a, uh, uh, a preview, but enough so that people know what's going on, what you found out, how it's connected, and why you're so interested in it, why you think it's a strong case. Okay. Well, he's the, first of all, he's the only person in the world, as far as I know, who uh, reliably knows exactly when and where and in what design the cross circles in his area will occur. This has been happening since he was 14. He's now 28. And he has a, a particular discomfort, disquiet. He calls it angst. Uh, it's quite obvious if you know him, and once you get to know him, you, you see the signs when this is happening. He becomes, he paces a lot, he becomes very unquiet and uh, nervous, people might say, because uh, he, he's feeling something when these crop circles are getting ready to occur. And then he has um, a mental image, uh, very clear, in which he sees the actual crop circle, whatever it's going to look like, in the beginning, they were simple circles, but now they're often not simple circles at all, much more elaborate. And he will see exactly where they're occurring. He knows where in his general area. I mean, this is for the southern part of Holland. And he uh, is always right. In the early days, years and years ago, he would go out himself on his bicycle out into the field. He has always liked to spend quite a bit of time alone out on these dikes. But now, because uh, some people think he is making them, he doesn't go out alone ever at night in the fields. He's always with somebody, and generally with several adults if possible, so that uh, there's no question about him actually making these things himself. But I have been with him many times when this has happened, and his his parents, his father in particular, uh, goes with him now and also his mother and then a few other people in the local community. And it's a consistent 
result. He knows that it's going to happen. He now will draw. Usually these things happen at night, and he stays up at night. He doesn't go to bed. He tends to sleep in the morning and stay up most of the night. And he'll draw. His parents will usually are usually in bed by about 11. And he'll draw a picture of what it's going to be and where it's going to be. And now for the last several years, it's been his father who goes in the morning early to the location. And sure enough, you know, there it is. How do you know now, that there's an I obvious... a whole bunch of things about what happened last year in 2007. And for people on the website, it's, uh, it's simply Robert Vandenbroek events at Woodenhead. And these are a number of circles that occurred last summer in 2007, which he was aware of before they did. So, I mean, his ability to do this made me think originally that if we knew more about him and his situation, maybe we'd learn more about the crop circles. Well, it was it, a fairly direct thing. I mean, if someone actually knows when and where they're going to happen, if we could figure out how and what that all meant, maybe we'd understand what the circles were all about, you know? Yeah, I got one question about this, and it seems like an obvious one, and I'm sure you've looked into it. Um, how do you know there's not some collusion with somebody that's making these? Um, have you looked into that? And also, have you looked at, have you analyzed the circles when you get there, when they happen? We have analyzed a number of the circles, uh, that not all of these. There have been a lot of them over the years, but we've analyzed enough of them to know that the changes that we find all over the world are consistently also found in these circles uh, that occur around Robert. Now, as far as why do I believe it, <laughs> you're probably going to have to read the book to fully grasp this. Okay. But I happen, I'm in a very peculiar situation. Because I met him when he was quite young, I think he was 16 when we first met, and we, the reason we met was that he and his, one of his sisters, his younger sister, were in his room. They live in a village that's uh, very small in the south of Holland, and their particular house backs up to a big farm field, you know, that is used. The farm is, is farmed regularly. And he and his sister were in his room, which is at the back of the house on the second floor, one night listening to music, and a huge glowing ball of light uh, suddenly appeared immediately outside his bedroom windows in, in the space of a, a little balcony sort of space that's up there. Both he and Madeline, his sister, were frightened, ran downstairs to get the family, and when they came back up, ball of light was gone, but there were burn marks on the eaves above the balcony on the outside of the doors, and there was a pile of white powder sitting on the balcony floor. And that was sampled, and one of our field workers in Amsterdam found out about this, and he contacted us to see if we could analyze the powder, you see. Yeah. And so that's how that happened. I mean, the powder was sent to us. We did the analysis. And then I was in Amsterdam to do a lecture the following year, I guess. And Robert and his family came to meet me and to thank me at the lecture hall. The material had what was discovered to be a very pure magnesium carbonate, which is not an unusual uh, substance. I mean, it's a very earthly substance. But uh, what it was doing in that location, uh, under those circumstances, we couldn't explain. And particularly, the chemical formulation of that material 
was the same as the magnesium carbonate, which is regularly used by people as a fire retardant. It's used in fire extinguishers and in fire retardant materials and things like that. So it was from there and meeting them uh, that this all grew. I was. They asked me if I could spend a couple of days with them while I was on that trip to Europe in, I think, 98 or 99. I thought my notes right in front of me. And I did have some time, so I went. And that very first time in their house, I had one of the more startling experiences of my life. I knew a little bit about Robert at this point from the field worker, and the father and I had been in touch a little bit. Uh, and I knew that there was light phenomena. I knew that he had had many of these circle things where he knew when they were happening. And that very first time I was there, uh, I was, I guess that first night I went right to sleep because I had jet lag. But the next night I had this feeling not to go to bed. And the, his parents are, this is an upper middle class family and they're very excellent hosts. And I knew not to go to bed. I just knew I should not go to bed. And I told them to go ahead, but being such exquisite hosts, they wouldn't go until I did. And so all three of us, the father, the mother, and I were sitting up in the living room at around 2 o'clock in the morning. Um, suddenly there was a flash of light outside those uh, these floor-to-ceiling glass doors that go out onto a small patio at the back of the house. I had my back to those doors and didn't see it, but the father said, there, there. And he immediately told me that was typical of these flashes of light that they had occasionally seen more and more recently. So he, we turned off all the lights downstairs. I turned my chair around, and we were all three then now facing, looking out these floor-to-ceiling glass doors. And the most incredible display then started to occur. I was sitting in a chair and I felt this tingling that started at about at my waist and went up all sides of my body, front, back, and both sides. And it, this tingling rose slowly, becoming more and more intense as it got closer to my head. It got up to my neck and by this time it was intense enough so that I was thinking, okay, I'm out here. Uh, I just, it, I was getting scared. And at exactly yeah. the instant I had this thought, hell with this, I'm getting out of here, the tingling stopped, and this light thing then took place out in that little garden where there were, there were flashes of light, there were balls of light, there were blobs of light, there were these big blobs that were coming down from the sky and hitting the brick patio and bouncing along. Uh, I've never seen like in my life. It was like a three-ring circus, and I didn't quite know where to look first. I mean, it was very busy out there. And it lasted for, I think, about 15 seconds or so. And then it stopped. You know, like nothing, like, duh, did that just happen? And nobody, they didn't say a word, and I was kind of in shock. And a, a minute or two went by, and then the tingling started again. And it rose slowly up my body. Again, it got up to my neck area. And again, it was getting intense enough so I was frightened and was getting ready to get up and leave when the tingling stopped and the light show started again. Again, the, you know, these large sort of soccer ball-sized 
bluish white diaphanous things just hanging there. Very dense, white, heavy, bright, sort of like lightning bright blobs coming down and rolling across the patio. Flashes of light going off everywhere. And all of this simultaneously. I mean, you really didn't quite know where to look. Well, this situation ensued for the next, I can't think of 11 minutes. And during that time, there were five incidents of this broken up, each one lasting 15, 20 seconds apiece with a couple of minutes in between. During this time, nobody said a word. I did finally get gutsy enough. I got right up next to the windows. I was afraid to go out, but I stood as close, I mean, as touching the windows, looking up to see what I could see, if anything, during that last time. When it was over, I don't know how I knew it was over, but I turned around to the two of them and said, well, that's it and took one of them, I think it was the, his, the wife, Mrs. Vandenbroek, into the kitchen and kept the father in the living room and then asked each of them separately to describe what they had just seen because I would, had no idea whether we had all seen the same thing. And it turned out that each of them, we had all perceived the, the entire incident pretty much exactly the same. They had never seen anything like that before, ever, neither had I. And their, their conviction expressed by the father was that that entire event had occurred because I was there on purpose for me. My particular take on the matter was that the whole incident was very location specific. It occurred in a very small and concise area, but I didn't have any particular notion that it was because I was there. Now I'm not so sure. Many years later, with many other events as dramatic or maybe more so, I am not so sure now. And uh, do their neighbors or anybody else see these kind of things too, or do they look over at their house, or is it just Holland that family? Is different from the states in many ways. Um, this is uh, an upper middle class community. Uh, people in Holland keep are very much to themselves in the country. The some of the neighbors have now, on many occasions, seen all kinds of things, but they tend to stick rather to themselves. Um, I do actually know the neighbors now better than I think uh, the parents do actually, because you know brash American comes in and says hi to everybody, but. They, I mean, we, there are a number, it's not just me, there are loads of other people who have experienced a number of these events. Robert's younger sister, Madeline, who is a magnificent, oh, she's gorgeous, and just as nice as she can be. And she's gone through a couple of boyfriends because some of these guys have been at the house when some of these things have occurred, and it has made some of them leave. <laughs> So she's she's had to find people who can tolerate some of this stuff, you know, who wants to see her enough to stick around. But, I mean, that is just literally the tip of the iceberg. Uh, in the years that I've been going there now, I go almost every summer and spend two or three or four weeks with the family. I stay right in the house. And there has been all sorts of poltergeist activity that I've witnessed over the years 
uh, Robert has been physically removed from one place and put in another, uh, which I have uh, witnessed or been part a part of the situation. The crop circles and him knowing, you know, when and where they're going to appear. There are also uh, there have been a number of what he now calls and in fact did then UFO encounters. He has always been very clear up until fairly recently that the crop circle situation was one thing and completely separate from the UFO situation. But in recent years, uh, that is no longer the case. Uh, He seems to have the opinion now that some UFOs, anyhow, I mean, we're assuming here that there's quite a variety of UFOs, and that some of them are in some way related to the crop circles. Uh, this last summer, in fact, there were a number of situations in which he felt what he calls UFO energy, which he distinguishes from other kinds of energies. He's become a healer, and many people now come to him. I mean, there's a line around the block to see him for healing sessions. Uh, he's also become, uh, I don't know what you call, someone who... It can be in touch with people who have died, mediums, they call them mediums, and he is now, in fact, in, in Holland, considered to be a medium. He told me some years ago that he not only was uh, able to perceive people, uh, the relatives of people, you know, clients of his who had died, when the clients were interested in the welfare of these people, he could see them and be aware of their situation, their status, so to speak. But he told me he was also beginning to photograph them. And I absolutely didn't believe that. I mean, he's told me about sticking metal objects to his body. He's told me about being able to influence compasses, uh, about being able to bend metal, all that stuff. And I've seen him do all that stuff now, and he can. But I did not believe this business of photographing people who had died. And in, I think it was in 2006, in the fall of that year, I was one night with him in his little office, simply photographing him, uh, bending the metal, or maybe he was doing the compass thing, I don't know. I was just trying to document it photographically because I was going to write about it. And while we were working, there was this very quiet tap, tap, tap at the door. And it was so gentle, so quiet, I would probably not have thought about it again at all, except that Robert turned around and said, did you hear that? And I had, and I said, yeah. And then I realized right away that something was getting ready to happen. He came around from his side of the desk, and we had only one camera in that room at the time. It was mine, a digital And he asked me if he could use my camera, and I handed it to him, and I was standing right next to him with my head right next to his so I could see the LED screen on the back. And he started to shoot, and this man's head appeared on screen. I jumped like, I mean, it startled the dickens out of me. I I was, I, I, I jumped. It's like, good God, what is that? Well, he took some 26 photographs that night over the next 15, 16 minutes of this man 
it was quite clear. It's not a ghost. It's not a faint, soft image. It's quite clear. It's sepia tone. The entire sequence is sepia tone. The room is white, and the photos immediately before show the room in its normal color, and immediately after also show the room in its normal color. Now, I wrote this incident up in the, it's a 2006, it's Robert Vandenbroek, just, uh, I think it's an update my, on the BLT website, uh, marked uh, update 2006. But I did not put in the photos of the man's face because at the time we didn't know who it was. We were afraid we might startle somebody, his family, you know, if we put it up. And so all I did was put up the rest of the photos, the first 12 or so are of the man. And then Robert called in an energy to help this man whom he thought had died and needed help. And the next thing that there was this other image that appeared, I don't know what it was, but it then appeared five or six or seven times on the camera. And then the light balls came in, which Robert had said he was going to bring them in because they, they were needed. They appeared, and then he kicked open the door, they went down the hall, and immediately after, the photos returned <laughs> to absolutely normal. The color was normal. The temperature in the room, which had dropped a little bit, was back to normal. There was a funny vibe in the room during all this, and it was gone. It was as if it never happened. And if I didn't have the camera and the photographs, I'm not sure I'd have realized it really did happen. But it did. And in this one of these reports I'm getting ready to put up, I'm going to put those pictures so people can see them. And a little bit more intimately, my own brother's image appeared last summer. He died in June, uh, very unexpectedly. Oh. And Robert photographed him with my camera again and with me standing right there with him. Uh, in the fields in Holland last summer. And since then, he has photographed many, I mean, he's photographed many, many, many of these people, some of whom we know and know that they have died. Others we don't know. Uh, we're assuming that they also have died, maybe not. But there are hundreds and hundreds of them, and I'm writing a piece that I hope will help people understand the truth of this, however they want to interpret it. You know, uh, it's my camera. I'm using shots take you that were primarily my camera, uh, which I keep in a locked case, and it's handed to him with me standing right with him to rule out any funny business, you know, with the camera. Yeah. But I've seen him do it now with so many cameras for so many people for so many years now. This is not a game. I don't know what it is. It'd be but interesting. It's you actually happening. It'd be interesting, you know, to get him, like they used to do with Yuri Geller, get him in a couple of different labs with people who aren't hostile to him, because that seems to mess with things, and just say, replicate what you've been doing while we watch with our camera and, and uh, have that done That's two exactly or three different places. That's exactly what the scientists are doing right now. Okay. That's exactly uh, what they're doing. You said, but go ahead. It's way past the point of uh, my... You know, doubting. I, I have doubted and doubted and doubted, and every time uh, it's been shown that, you know, that I'm wrong. Uh, the fact that I can't understand it, that I don't have a framework for this, that I don't know how to interpret it, uh, Robert has, a, has very specific interpretations, 
they're not necessarily mine. I'm not mm-hmm. sure. I don't. I don't know about some of this. He knows. Uh, he feels a, a profound spiritual connection, and is absolutely positive that all of these events that occur around him and have been since he was a child are a, a spiritual phenomenon. Are of the Almighty. I think we would say. I don't mean that God is talking to him. I just mean that they are of the spiritual realm. And he's, he is quite comfortable with that. That's what he believes. I don't know. Uh, I don't know what they are. I don't know what it is. But I have now seen somewhere in the neighborhood of six to 8,000 phenomenal, unbelievable photographs. I've seen hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these people, very clear, some of them. Uh, almost like photographs, you know? I mean, like real photographs. Yeah. And I know that this is all going on. I know he knows when crop circles are going to happen. I think I sent you in an email. Yes, you did. Uh, my little Easter present for him. Uh, I was trying to surprise him this last, I was there at Easter time this year. And he doesn't like material things. And so I normally, I never bring him a present. But for some reason, I had it in my head to, bring him a present this year and I didn't know whether he'd ever had an Easter basket because his childhood was kind of unusual and I didn't know whether they even did Easter baskets in Holland so I decided that I should do that for him and I went to the store and got a basket and got that green stuff you put in it and some chocolate Easter eggs and jelly beans and these little peep things that my little marshmallow peeps that my mother used to put in our bag in our baskets and a big chocolate rabbit and I packed this all up and carried it across on the plane myself so it wouldn't get squashed. And when I got to Holland, and I went to my room and I hid it all so he wouldn't see it because I really was trying to surprise him. And I told him I had a surprise for him, but I was being coy and, you know, I wasn't going to give him any clues. I just wanted him to be thinking about it. And I forgot that if he thinks about it, he's going to figure it out. And he asked me, you know, a couple times what it was, and I said, no, I can't tell you, it's a big secret, you gotta wait for Easter. A couple days later, he came into my room and asked me again, and I said, nope, I'm not gonna tell you. And he sat down, took one of the pieces of paper I had there, and focused just for a second, I mean, maybe 30 seconds. And then he drew an Easter basket, a big chocolate rabbit, all the eggs, the little peeps, everything. And I thought, well, Forget about trying to, you know, if he wants to know, I forgot that he can, he can just focus and he'll know. And he's done that sort of thing so many times. It was, I just, it was funny that that time I forgot that he could do it. <laughs> but he did. <laughs> I, I have, um, an email, a few email questions, if you don't mind. No, go ahead. Yeah. When, uh, actually, Walter sent these in, who's, who co hosts with me sometimes. Um, this, there's like four of them. Uh, let me pick a couple. What's your opinion on why some individuals publicly display their method of creating crop circles as a means of debunking? Do you spe- uh, what, read that again? What is my opinion? What? Why some individuals publicly display their method of creating crop circles as a means of debunking? Why do they do it? Yeah. I don't know. He's, the other part of the question, do you suspect someone is behind them, or do you see them as people wanting their own 15 minutes of fame? Probably both. Uh, for years and years and years, I mean, the 15 minutes of fame thing, I'm sure that's that's playing some sort of a role. And for many, many years, I 
I have never been particularly interested in the conspiracy angle about things, but I frankly, at this point, I have to think that there is an organized and probably and financed effort to, at the very least, completely confabulate the issue, to confuse the issue, uh, you know, by having a, a large number of crop circles, at least in England, and some certainly elsewhere, man-made. Uh, and I think it is it is too persistent and too elaborate uh, and too obviously organized to be nothing but people who are artists or interested in their 15 minutes of fame. I have slowly come to that uh, opinion. But remember that alien face with a disc that appeared yeah. a couple of years ago? I don't think you ever saw it, but it was a very clear alien-looking face and disc, mm-hmm. which the crop circle community went absolutely nuts about. Um, and I, all I could think was, boy, if somebody is trying to uh, get the general, the mainstream public to dismiss this whole situation, if I were trying to get the public to dismiss it, that's exactly what I would do. And because that particular formation was in an area that the crop circle people don't check regularly, because there were no signs in the plants, because the pathways, which were reported to be only two inches wide, in fact, were more like five inches wide, plenty wide enough for a human foot, to me, that effort looked most suspiciously like a very organized attempt to just confuse, you know, the whole situation. And there have been others which hit me the same way. Okay, uh, uh, Walter's second question. Have you studied, his, I was going to ask this, have you studied historical accounts about or related to crop circle phenomena, and what have you found? Historical accounts of crop circles? Meaning, I get what he means is before the, what is it, late 1980s, mid to late 1980s? I can't claim to be a thorough student. I've read the the, the resources that we have. Uh, there are various people in the crop circle community who have collected these reports. I have personally spoken to a number of farmers and ranchers in just in pursuing the current crop of these things, and been told by them of crop circles that they or their parents or their grandparents found on their farms. This is when farms have been in the family for generations uh-huh. and had a number of first-hand reports of that here in the States and in uh, Canada. I know that Andy uh, Thomas in southern England has done the same thing with a good many uh, people there and has many first-hand accounts going back to the early 1900s anyhow. And then we do have some historical record going back into the 1600s of what certainly looks like crop circle reports from that time period. It doesn't seem to be uh, a brand new phenomenon. Uh, Well, actually, Walter asked something that seems, I don't really believe in the 2012 thing, but it seems like there's been a lot more of them since the 1980s. It kind of wax and wane from year to year. But he asked if you see any correlation between the appearance of the phenomena and earth changes, so-called, in 2012, end times, things like that. I'm, the, I have stayed away from in the interpretation of particular, I don't feel up to the task 
uh, I don't think I know enough, and I tend to be a little leery of doomsday type scenarios, end of the world type things. Uh, I may be dead wrong, in which case I guess we'll all find out in 2012, but <laughs> I do know that one of these Mayan glyph formations, this is a very difficult situation. In 2004, near Silbury Hill was the first of these formations in modern times that were uh, by were named by the crop circle enthusiasts as a, having a Mayan connection. They called it the Mayan glyph or something. I've heard and it. I happen to know that there are three human beings, one American and two Brits, who were in that formation the first night that it occurred. They had gone simply in the hopes of getting light ball, you know, pictures of light balls and stuff. Uh -huh. Had no idea there was another whole part of it that was going to go down. And they were in the formation when five young British men appeared and began to very methodically finish the formation. Now, if the second part of the formation was mechanically created, which we know it was, I then would assume that the first part of it probably was also. Yeah. And since the community, the crop circle community, took decided that that was the best formation of the year and has since gone on very excitedly, you know, about this Mayan connection, I find it difficult knowing that the very first indicator of any Mayan relationship was man-made. Right. And I, I just, I, I got my hands full dealing with the plants and the soils and some of the other stuff I'm doing. And I think at this point it's better to leave. I don't have a much of a background in symbols and of various other religions. I don't know a lot about these things, and I think it's better to leave it to people who do know something, and they can offer what they their interpretations, and people just have to decide whether it makes sense to them or not. Okay, there's one final question from Walter, which I know is dear to his heart, and I don't know if it's true, but he says, why do you think these circles seem to appear mostly in the same uh, latitude, longitude and latitude zone? Mm-hmm. Do well, they? the best answer I've got for that so far is that in England, in southern England, uh, we know that we have a chalk aquifer. Now, chalk is the most porous rock, and John Burke and I and several other people subsequently did conduct a number of experiments where we measured the ground electrical charge in Wiltshire over the summers. And what we found was that as the water table receded, which it does over the summer, the ground electrical charge increases. If, in fact, we're talking about an atmospheric plasma system of any kind, naturally forming or uh, engineered, if you will, the ground electrical charge being slightly increased might be pulling these things to those particular areas. Now, in North America and Canada, uh, and also in the Germany to some extent, where many of the circles occur is over limestone. Limestone is the next most porous rock. We have not had the time or the money to do the ground electrical measurements in these other areas, but uh, it makes some sense to conclude that we would see a change in the ground electrical measurements over limestone also. So it may be that it's a physical attractor 
uh, which is bringing them into the areas where they're most frequently seen. Are there, well, are they actually in the same general, I would say, more like a latitude? Latitude, yes. They are. They are. The majority of them are. And why specifically that, I don't know. So there's I, none so like... so many questions. There's so many things still to examine. Uh-huh. And it, it drives me crazy that so many people who are interested aren't willing to do any of the follow-up work in any one of these areas. You can only do so much right. in any one group, you know. Mm-hmm. And there are many, many questions that we haven't even begun to really approach. Such as? <laughs> oh. Oh, the, uh, the other thing that that leads me to is... Um, are there any circles found outside, you know, I guess between 30 and 40 degrees north latitude? Oh, yes. They've been found in Africa. We've got them in Peru. We've got them in, uh, in several places in South America that I know of, several places in Russia. Um, I don't know whether the South Korean one this year, there was a really huge and kind of elaborate one in South Korea, the first time we've ever heard of one there. And exactly what latitude that was, I don't know. But, yes, there we know that they do occur outside of that latitude, Okay, those latitudes. Uh, see, I, I wanted to ask you, and you, you saw some of these questions that I sent beforehand, and I think I'm forcing you into a – would be forcing you into an opinion by asking this, but do you have an idea what what the ultimate source of the anomalous crop circles are? Would, would you be willing to hazard a guess, since obviously something no. intelligent is at work? I think the work. best thing I could say, and I'm pretty comfortable with this, I've, I've seen two of them happen now. I mean, I've been right there. I didn't see much the second time, but I was right there when it happened. Whatever this is, is incredibly powerful, and I just mean good old-fashioned power, energy. Uh-huh. It has, it's incredibly precise uh, the, the, literally a blade of grass splitting it down the middle is nothing for whatever this is. It has um, a delicacy. It's capable of a, an incredible delicacy. And I perceive it as just in, enormously more complex or sophisticated than I can currently to talk about intelligently. I can talk about little bits and pieces, and certain other people have other little bits and pieces. But I think it's a very uh, complex situation. I saw somebody sent me an email of this guy, Matthew Williams, yeah. saying how you could tell uh, this is, you know, real crop circles are like this, and this is how you can tell. And I'm thinking, I just can't believe that something so simplistic that people would listen to that and actually be convinced. I just, I mean, if that is the state of mankind, we're all in trouble. <laughs> I mean, if people can't think a little bit in greater depth than that about events like this, uh, I don't know. Maybe we'll never know much more than we know right now. Yeah, but some of the crop circle hoaxer or artist or whatever you want to call them, the mechanical creators of the crop circles, have described weird things happening to them while they're doing it, too. I've heard that. I've heard that. And I bet you they're telling the truth. I mean, to, to suggest that all crop circles are man-made is simply to be uninformed or deliberately lying. I don't know. But, I mean, it's simply not true. And the real phenomenon 
whatever it is, seems to be, as far as I can tell, related to many other phenomena which humans tend to label separately and differently as if they were entirely separate, uh, and I don't think they are. They're all interrelated. The purpose of the crop circles, the only feeling I get really is it's wake up, wake up, pay attention, and maybe in a gentler way than uh, a UFO suddenly appearing or something like that. There tends to be a lot more of a fear situation around the UFO phenomenon, whereas crop circles uh, generally, I think, are perceived as fairly gentle, fairly benign. And maybe it's a way of trying to reach people without frightening them uh, by some larger consciousness or intelligence than ours. Yes, possibly. I, I almost hate to say it, but have you read um, Jim Brandon's book? Uh, now I can't remember the name of it. Now all the entire audience is yelling it now in their rooms, I know. Um, <laughs> not Mysterious America. Oh, uh, Rebirth of Pan. No, is it? Is it sounds interesting. Interesting title. Um, it's called uh, Rebirth of Pan, and uh, the subtitle Jim is Brandon? J- Jim Brandon, which is a pseudonym. Very hard book to find. Um, I don't. It went through one printing. Very hard to find. But uh, uh, the subtitle is "Hidden Faces of the American Earth Spirit," which automatically automatically turns a whole bunch of people off, thinking it's New Age mumbo jumbo. But it's not. What he proposes is that there's some kind of energy present, um, which is might be focused by certain things like uh, aquifers, mines, caves, and things like that, which might spontaneously create these things. He doesn't say uh-huh. that's what it is, but he says that there's... He found, at least in the 1980s when he wrote it, um, compelling evidence that there's a correlation between an anomalous ge- geophysical things and stuff that appears on the land that's anomalous. Yes. Uh, that, I mean, that's been noted by others, and I, that sounds very interesting. I'd like to try and get my hands on that book. Well, the, I have got a copy, and I've got an, actually a copy that somebody made for me, a, a photocopy would before. Loan, would you loan the copy that was made for you? Yes, I would. And I, I'm very good about returning things. Yes, I, I've, I've stopped loaning out original copies unless I have multiple ones. But this is, a, like I said, a photocopy. Yeah, I think you might find it interesting, and I think a lot of people listening that have read it have, you know, some of the things you've said resonate very well with what... Brandon said in this book, and it's his only book on anomalies, really, besides kind of a, a, a tourist guide to weird things in the United States. Then he stopped and went off and did other things. And I find that um, a lot of books on anomalies, UFOs, are the best ones are written by somebody who's written one or two of them and then completely stopped and gone on to something else. Yeah, yeah. So, well, yeah. I think, um, I guess more than anything, I what's happened to me in pursuing all of this is a really massive enlargement of my sense of consciousness, the nature of consciousness. You know, what is consciousness really? And these, uh, you know, what are the abilities and capabilities of consciousness? Mm-hmm. I have a feeling it's it's enormous, uh, enormously larger than we currently get, you know? Yeah. That there are all kinds of exciting and interesting things that will come from uh, a much a greater understanding of of consciousness, you know, just what it is. Right. And it, it, a lot of it hooks into what you were speaking of earlier, 
with physicists who tend to be the weirdest people on the block in the sciences who are saying the strangest things but are thinking forward. And a lot of the things they talk about impinge on the consciousness uh, uh, definition, if you want to call it that, um, yeah, and show us I that, mean, yeah, there's not God boxes. Thank God for people like Dean Radin and Bill Tiller and uh, many of these others who are starting to make dents into what is, in fact, the nature of consciousness and what are some of its potential capabilities. But uh, I know when I was standing in that field watching my brother's face appear on my camera, that I mean, it was, it, it just, all I could, all I could feel, I couldn't believe my eyes, but as I, over the months since, as I've thought about it, and as I look at the pictures, I think there was a communication of consciousness there of some kind. I mean, right. Robert had never seen my brother. He wouldn't have known him if he saw him. Mm -hmm. So how in the world he facilitated that occurring, I don't know. But what I felt was that there was some kind of consciousness reaching, you know, from me, from him to me and back, and he was dead. Now, if that can happen, in, in, if that can happen when it did, then there's a great deal still to be learned about consciousness and probably about life and death, too. Yeah, definitely. Uh, we, our next show is ready to come in here. Um, maybe I, you could give uh, your website again if people want to contact you, yeah, more if, information. If people are interested in all of this, the BLT website is at uh, www dot blt just like the sandwich bltresearch.com and there are many sections there the clay mineral xrd study which we didn't talk about mm -hmm. is very important and it's all it's there the old study uh i'm starting a whole section on robert vandenbroek to discuss some of these very strange things that go on with him uh, the three published papers are there there's an awful lot of stuff and people please feel free to email me with questions if you have them all right. Thanks so much for coming on the show, and I think we're going to have to have you on again probably when your uh, Vandenberg uh, book comes out. Oh, well, thank you so much. All right. This is uh, Radio Mysterioso. We've been talking with Nancy Talbot, who runs BLT Research, um, dealing with crop circles and all the other stuff we've been talking about tonight. And I knew it was going to be a good interview when I talked to her on the phone the first time. And uh, please come back on again soon. Well, thanks for having me. All right. Thanks, bye -bye. Nancy. All right. Bye. All right. Ready, Mysterioso. Thanks for listening. Uh, Dark Fibers is coming on, and um, we'll be back next week, and most likely it's going to be music. But, oh, well, actually, Walter's coming back next week. Tell us about a uh, new version of his, I mean, his new magazine, uh, Sesheri's new book, um, which is a, a uh, the sequel to... Um, uh, wonder of the worlds it's called metamorphosis so come back on uh come back for that and uh we'll see you next week Radio mysterioso coming up dark fibers and thanks again play music please there it goes a lot too real too quick it's such a good song too all right see you next week <laughs>